text uh, for this evening is from Micah chapter 4. Last time I preached, I I skipped over this passage so we could uh, look at Micah chapter 5, which is sort of very much connected with uh, Advent and Christmas. Um, Talked about Bethlehem and the one coming there, so it was... was, um, it seemed appropriate to skip this and to come back to it at a later date. So we're going to do that this evening. Micah chapter 4, verses 6 through 13. Hear the word of the Lord. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those who I've afflicted. And the lame I will make the, the, the remnant And those who were cast off a strong nation and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come. The former dominion shall come. Kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. Now, why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished that pain seized you like a woman in labor? Rise and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor, for now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the land of your enemies. Now many nations are assembled against you, saying, Let her be defiled, and let our eyes gaze upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plans, that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise, thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make you horn iron, and I will make your hooves bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples and devour their game to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we meditate on your word and hear your word proclaimed, we pray that your, your blessing will be upon us. Direct our hearts and minds to you, Lord, and to the truth that you have for us this evening. Father, may your blessing be upon your servant. He seeks to proclaim that word faithfully to your servants that all might be edified and that you would be glorified. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Martin Luther once said that God creates from nothing, therefore we must become nothing in order to be created anew in God's image. Now, I suppose this isn't literally 100% true, um, God, of course, can create from something from something existent, but there is really a point to what Martin Luther was trying to say. Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, 9, uh, it, begging the Lord to take away from him the, the thorn on his side, received the following answer from Jesus. He said, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. God's chief agenda within his creation is to glorify himself and to make his glory known to his creation. And when the Lord does something amazing through those who are weak and helpless, that that's when power, God's power is most clearly made evident. So our passage that we're looking at this evening also makes that basic point clear as we shall see. If we think back a a number of months when I preached on chapter 3, we saw that because of the wickedness of the rulers of Israel, judgment was going to come on the land. They would be, in the northern kingdom first, would be 
uh, uh, siege by Assyria and then would be taken into captivity by the, the Babylonians uh, who would also take over the, the southern kingdom as well. And they would destroy the temple. However, immediately following this announcement, we saw uh, a while ago back in chapter 4 um, that uh, in chapter 4, the first five verses of the chapter, um, Micah proclaimed that there would be a glorious day coming when the temple would be restored. I talked about how you know there's sort of almost like this mirror that, that right at the end of chapter 3 that sort of gives you a, a reverse image of everything that, that has just come. So you see all these bad things in chapters 1, 2, 3 that are going to happen to Israel and to, to, to Judah. And then it's sort of the reverse is happening as you start looking at chapter 4. All these good things are, are, are the sort of the exact mirror opposite of what's going to be happening uh, negatively to, to Israel. is going to be occurring in the lives of, of the, the people of Israel. So in chapter 4, Micah proclaims there would be this glorious day when there would be restoration. In our text this evening, we, have, we see a mixture of these two things, uh, both chapter 3 and chapter uh, 4, 1 through 5. On the one hand, there is clearly the element of exile and judgment that are coming. Babylonian, Babylonia is, is specifically uh, uh, mentioned. Um, and and uh, um, Babylon is being used for the purpose in this text to bring forth a revived remnant, however, as the ultimate goal of what is happening in this text. The, the trauma the Lord was going to afflict upon Israel, upon Judah, would in a sense bring Israel to nothing so that the Lord might restore a remnant to create for himself those who would follow him. There would be a cleansing God, would, in, in Martin Luther's way of talking, would be creating again from nothing. This remnant, according to verse 6 of this text, is comprised of lame exiles. So now as we consider this text, be asking yourselves this question. Are you a member of that lame remnant? And if you are, what does that mean to you? So this evening... Uh, I, I have three points that we can sort of organize uh, what we're going to be thinking about this evening uh, under the good, the bad, and the ugly. No reference to the um, Clint Eastwood film, uh, but uh, anyway, something easy to, to remember. The good, the bad, and the ugly. The first of all, the good, the good news, which you can find in verses 6 through 10. Our text starts out in a similar fashion as did the, the text in, in chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, when we look back at that, by projecting the reader's mind into the future. Starts out with the word, words, I should say, in that day. In that day, declares the Lord. Presently, Israel and, and, and Judah, uh, in particular Jerusalem, may enjoy a measure of peace and tranquility, uh, even if the leaders of the country are wicked and uh, oppressive, um, yet they enjoy a certain amount of peace from, from the enemies around them. But the Lord, through Micah, directs the reader's attention to, uh, 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 to, to look forward to a day when things would not be like this, when judgment is going to come upon the nation and there would be much suffering amongst the people because of their being dominated by the yoke of oppression of the Assyrians and then the Ab Babylonians. 
that there would come a day when the Lord would gather again his lame and exiled people again into a strong nation. The center of that nation would be Zion, Jerusalem, where the Lord would reign over his people. It would be a strong nation, and yet it would be comprised of weak and lame people, poetically speaking. Its strength would not come from physical agility, but from the Lord who dwelt in their midst. Last time, the sermon was entitled, The Strength of Bethlehem. And we saw, you know, Bethlehem is not exactly a a strong uh, city or town. It's just a really obscure town, except for the fact that David was descended from that particular place. So it would not come, their strength would not come from physical ability or from swords, but rather they would be weak, and that would be their strength. Because as they were weak and helpless, they would have to look to the Lord and trust to him for his strengthening. And, of course, God's strength is infinite. At the time that that Mike is writing, most of the people would no doubt receive this news of impending judgment with a, a great deal of fear. The Babylonians are coming. They're not very nice to the nations which they conquer. This sounds rather distressing. So Micah asks a rhetorical question. Why now do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished that pain sees you like a woman in labor? The reality was and is and always will be that God's people, God's true Israel, always has a king. True enough, they may not have a political leader to organize them into a body politic and to lead them in, in victory with their physical armies over physical enemies, but they will always have a king. All who place their trust in God have God as their king. We can be reminded of that ourselves. Uh, sometimes we you know, get very caught up in the political situation in the world, and we may feel like everything is just going in the wrong direction, and maybe we're concerned about persecution or our rights being taken away or not being able to have jobs or what have you. But always be reminded that God is sovereign and God uses these kinds of difficult situations for his good purposes. And not to say that we rejoice in wickedness going on in the world, but it's not to be surprise us that when unbelievers act like unbelievers. And so when the world is full with unbelief, um, it's going to act like unbelieving people and indulge in all kinds of sinfulness. And yet that should not really distress us per se because we know God is on the throne and this is another opportunity for us to shine as a light amongst those in darkness. At the same time, while Micah is encouraging them in this situation, he does call upon Jerusalem to writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For the time is soon to come when the people would suffer significant consequences because of the sins of Israel and Judah and Babylon would conquer them. Their temple where they were called to worship, their culture, their way of life was going to be destroyed in the case of the temple or or significantly curtailed or disrupted in in regard to their own culture and life. 
More literal rendering of this passage can be found in the King James Version, which reads, Be in pain and labor to bring forth. The pain of labor to bring forth a child is paralleled in this passage with being exiled into Babylon in order to bring forth a restored remnant. Just as there is great joy at the end of the very painful trial of childbirth, there is great hope for those who face the onslaught of the Babylonians. For in this painful event, the Lord has a gracious purpose, which is to humble his people and cause them to cry out to him in faith, and therefore develop within them a love for him and a desire to have a deep fellowship with God, a deep trust in him. His people will see his power displayed in them in redeeming them from the hands of their enemies, and this will provoke them to worship and adore him. In addition, in verse 8, it's promised to the people that you sh- it, to you it shall come. The former dominion shall come. Kingship for the daughter or the citizens of Jerusalem. Um, if you reflect on my last sermon, and of course the, the truth that we know that, uh, that Jesus did come to Jerusalem, He came to redeem his people, those who place his trust in him. We know that that was fulfilled, that this promise in this text was fulfilled in Jesus coming and being a savior for his people, redeeming them from their sin and and restoring them into a good relationship with the Lord. But what's interesting is that little changes in the hearts of his people between in the 600 years between when this was written and when Jesus came. In verse 9, when Micah reminds the people in the midst of this trial that the Lord is their king, it reveals something about the hearts of these people. They were dismayed because there would come a day when they would not have a political ruler to defend the nation from the oppression of the Babylonians, showing that their hearts were not fixed on a heavenly king, but on an earthly one. When Christ came, people continued to look for er an earthly king to throw off the oppression of the Romans. They were looking for political solutions to their problem. They were looking for comfort that came from this world rather than to look to their Savior in heaven. When Jesus came, he wasn't the kind of Savior that they were looking for. But they didn't didn't realize their deepest real problem. It wasn't the Babylonians. It wasn't the Greeks later or the, 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 the Romans later after that. Ultimately, the problem was their own sin. This is the problem that that you all have, that we all have. Our greatest problem isn't some political party out there or some sin committed by uh, the the majority of the people of the culture. Uh, It's something that ultimately is inside of us, not outside of us. The problem is our own sin, our own lack of trust in the Lord. And so oftentimes the Lord uses difficult times like this to draw us in and to, to help us to understand what our true problem is. Had the, the Lord desired that his people would find their security in him rather than in worldly leaders. And so for, uh, for a time, he took those worldly leaders away from Israel to draw them to himself. 
And when they looked to him to find their security and found their security in the Lord, that the people would have true security and have their deepest needs fulfilled. Looking to earthly security and comfort never provides the satisfaction and the, out, the, the outward allure that it seems to promise. And so in love, the Lord would take this from the, these Israelites, the Jewish people, and they would be made a lame remnant that they would ultimately turn to the Lord and be saved from their sins, seeing that their real need, their real problem was within themselves. How often in our own day do you look to something besides God to be your satisfaction, your protector, your king? How often do we, do we act as if we had no infinite king ruling over us? If you're quick to answer, oh, not I. Well, then consider Matthew 19, 24, which says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The, is, the, the leaders of Israel in particular were wealthy and looked to their wealth and their power to provide security. And so the Lord took it away. And it was the lame remnant that would truly seek the Lord and truly have the power of God within them. It was hard for the rich of Israel to trust the Lord and to seek his kingdom because they were so distracted by their own wealth. But you might say, well, you know, I, I'm not wealthy. Maybe, but are you a, 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 a limping remnant? Now, many years ago, my pastor at the time defined being rich as having more than our basic necessities, food, shelter, and clothing. If you have more than that, really, in biblical terms, you're rich. Well, maybe that's, maybe that's not, maybe that's not precisely correct, but certainly it's something to think about. Who of you here doesn't have that? Who, who of you doesn't have more than your basic necessities given to you? And who amongst you even knows what it really means to not be rich if that is the proper definition? Certainly, someone who's lacking in these things, in these both basic essentials, sounds more like a limping remnant than any of us assembled here this evening. Now, does that mean that we despise wealth or physical comfort uh, that the Lord has granted us? No, but you ought to be circumspect of yourself. Ask yourselves, is it really the Lord whom I'm, I'm trusting? If so, what is my response to suffering turmoil when the, the Lord brings it to me in my life? My heart is always fixed on the never-changing, infinite, all-wise, sovereign king who governs all things to bring about the good for his people. Why do I complain when trouble comes my way? Shouldn't I rejoice in the fact that this is an opportunity to learn to trust the Lord all the more? You know, it's good for us as Christians to be concerned about our nation and about politics, but, you know, things become harder for Christians. It, it's not a reason for worry, even if it's difficult. Um, God often uses these things to accomplish his great goals in history. You know, it's easy, uh, as, you know, I'm, I'm connected with China, so it's easy to talk about uh, that particular place as, a, as an example. Um, China, is, is, of course, is a, is a nation that's run by people who are officially atheists and have 
every reason to want to suppress Christianity, and many Christians, even people I know, suffer for the gospel. A friend, a, a colleague of mine is in jail and, and will be for at least another five years. And then, and you know, it's hard not to be somewhat uh, angry about this. There's a proper, maybe a response to a certain degree. As a, you know, red-blooded American, you think about uh, freedom, freedom for China, and maybe praying for that end. Then you look over the, the Taiwan Strait into Taiwan, and there they have political freedom and freedom of speech and all those kinds of things that we Americans like. And you think, what, wouldn't it be great if it would be like Taiwan there? And yet, if you look at the church in China, it's growing, in the mainland China, the church is growing vigorously, it's hard to keep up with, with the church planting and have enough leaders to, to uh, disciple, to teach, to lead the, the churches, um, and to, to yeah, just to, to ordain them, to train them. It's a challenge because there are so many exciting things happening in that nation. But then you go over to Taiwan. Well, they have freedom, and you can go there and set up a church, but very few people are interested in the gospel. The church that is there is somewhat lethargic, a lot of liberalism, um, and the, the greater culture there, uh, if they have any perceptive perception on, a, on being a Christian, they, they associate it with a particular poli political party in, in Taiwan, and if you're not part of that party, you want nothing to do with being a Christian. Sounds so familiar to some other place that I've heard about before, but I don't know I mean, where exactly that might be, but anyway... Anyway, in any case, just points out the fact that, that God's priorities are often different than our, our own. And we easily just become overly focused on worldly matters. Not that they don't matter, but we become too concerned about them and worry and, and fret over these things over which we have no control. When God may be using them for, in ways that we just don't understand. Obviously, we all stand before the Lord as sinners whose hearts are easily swayed away from the Lord. And so let's humble ourselves and see that our, uh, ourselves as the true lame remnant that we are, that we are indeed sinners who are weak in and of ourselves, who are in desperate need of the strength of God, regardless of our situation and materially in this life. We need our rescuer, Jesus the Messiah, who has laid down his own life to rescue us from our own captivity from sin. The good news is that if you look to him in faith, then God has promised to rescue you. So that's the good. That's the good news. Then in verse 11 and 12, we get some of the, the bad news. The bad news, those in this text, is for those the Lord is using to bring people into captivity. Now, there's bad news for the Babylonians here for those who are living in unbelief. Verse 11 says that the nations set up against God's people arrogantly are gloating over their opportunity to devile Zion and plunder its goods. But what they fail to see, what these Babylonians fail to see, is that it's not for the sake of the Babylonians that the Lord is giving Zion into their hands. It is for the benefit of God's people whom they are plundering, as ironical as that may seem. In the end of the text, it says that the Lord is the one who has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. For the Lord has a gracious purpose towards Zion in subjecting them to ruin. Yet for Babylon, they will be threshed in punishment 
for their sins. In allowing them to plunder Israel, the Lord is giving them over to their own sinful desires and allowing them to wallow in their own wickedness, stretching the already infinite gap between them and their Creator. Why would God allow this? Why would God, in His purpose, bring this wicked nation to judge Israel? How can a nation even more wicked than Israel itself be used to purify Israel? How can the Lord use the Babylonian sin? This was a question that, that plagued the prophet Habakkuk in chapters 1, verses 12 through 17 of that book. If you want to, to think about that question more, you might look at that book. See, God sovereignly goes sovereign over the wickedness uh, of, of this world. He's sovereign over the wickedness of the world and has use of this wickedness for his own good purpose. And this is really, in fact, a common theme throughout the, the Bible. At the end of Genesis, you, you start at the beginning of Genesis and God creates the world all good. And then you read through the book of Genesis and things quickly go bad. And things repeatedly go bad. There's lots of bad, bad, bad all throughout that book. And uh, finally, you, you hear the story of, of how you know, Joseph is sold by his brothers and goes into Egypt. And these bad things happen to him there until finally he is raised up and, and end up saving his uh, family through the famine. And finally, when he, his um, brothers are concerned about their situation, knowing that what they have done to him and wondering what will happen to them now that Joseph is in a powerful position in Egypt, Joseph says to his brothers in regard to their sin against him, you intended to, to harm me, but God did it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. No less is this true of the betrayal, rejection, and crucifixion of the Lord Jesus. In Acts 2.23, it points out that Jesus was handed over to people of Jerusalem by God's set purpose and foreknowledge in order that he might be nailed to the cross and be raised from the dead in order to purchase the salvation of his people. The greatest sin in all of history is used accomplish the greatest deed of righteousness in all of history in Jesus being crucified or dying for our sins and rising up to, uh, to give us eternal life. On one hand, it might be difficult for you to understand how it is that God could use wickedness against you and against Jesus to achieve his good purposes, but on the other hand, there is no hope without that truth. There is no hope for anyone without the truth that God uses wickedness in order to achieve his good purposes because at the very heart of the gospel, we confess this. Every time we, we, we confess the Apostles' Creed, we bring up the name of Pontius Pilate. He was this wicked man who crucified, had Jesus cru crucified. God used that. Encouragement to you is that when you see the wicked prosper, particularly expense of those who put their trust in the Lord, the Lord is executing his plan. And this plan works for the ultimate advantage of the believer. To Micah's day and his own, this seems unjust. It's hard to understand. You know, the prophet Habakkuk just pulled his hair over, out over this. I don't understand how this can be, Lord. How can you allow this nation, even wicked, more wicked than us, to come and bring this calamity upon us. And yet, that is God's amazing plan. 
God will eventually bring the wicked into judgment and bless his children with grace through all of this. What's interesting, too, from this text is that those who are given power are allotted spoils from Israel. They, they are the wicked. Then this, is, this was not at all a blessing to them, but rather it was a curse. You would think, oh, they have more material wealth from Israel. God is blessing them. But in fact, these things really weren't a blessing to them. They ultimately were a curse. As already mentioned, this served to fill the Babylonians with pride and self-reliance and harden their hearts even more against the Lord. On the surface, it might be, have been tempting for the Israelites to have wanted what was being given to the Babylonians, these possessions that they had been enjoyed. However, it was, in fact, God's gracious purpose to take these things from them in order that he might seek, that God might bless them by turning their hearts from these material comforts towards the Lord. Therefore, the Babylonians were not to be envied. In our own day, it's also tempting to envy the power of the wicked and wish that we could have their power and influence for the sake of the cause of Christ. You might think, oh, how wonderful it would be if all the people at one of the big TV networks would become saved and, and all that money that's being used to produce the filth that they produce could be utilized for making programs that proclaim the truth of God, that the gospel. Oh, how wonderful it would be if all our national leaders would become Christians so that they could legislate according to God's word and people would suddenly take note of the truth. Oh, how wonderful it would be if all the educational establishments would, would come around to seeing the folly of evolution and their false theories about the inherent goodness of, of the human heart and all the woke ideology of, of the world that we have to face uh, so that people could be taught in such a way to be open to the truth of the Bible. Oh, wouldn't these be wonderful things? And yet that's not the way the Lord usually operates. His power is made perfect in weakness. It's not so much, that it, it's not so much in worldly strength that the Lord advances his kingdom. In fact, as we look at the cross, we see a picture of utter helplessness in terms of worldly strength. Yet in all, and then in this utter weakness, this utter weakness was transformed into the power of the gospel. It has the power to, to save all who place their trust in Jesus. It's the very fuel that fe feeds the church to accomplish the Lord's goal. Therefore, you have no reason to envy those people who have power and influence in this world. For the Lord is your strength, and he promises to fight for you. So there is bad news, bad news for the unbeliever, because the kingdom of a God has, is coming, and, the, and, the, and in power it will defeat the kingdom of darkness. And the, those who remain in darkness, their power, their worldly power, will work towards their ultimate undoing. This bad news, though, is good news for the believer because it, in it we see that the Lord and his kingdom will ultimately triumph and he will save a, a people, his remnant, for himself. So that's the bad news. Finally, verse 13, the ugly. Uh, if you look 13, there's something else which is maybe a little hard to understand. It's after the announcement that the Babylonians were going to conquer Israel and that the people of the Lord will be reduced to a ragtag remnant, 
for the ugly and, and to fit my outline. The Lord calls upon this remnant to rise up and thresh. The Lord promises that he will give them strength to overcome their enemies, to plunder them and devote their ill-gotten gains to the Lord. Now, does this contradict what the Lord was saying earlier? If they were going to be plundered, how is this also a promise of victory? Although I don't know if all American historians would agree with this, but some have said that what part of what American enabled the American colonists to triumph over the British in the Revolutionary War and subsequent wars was that the Americans were essentially a bunch of mutts. Uh, they didn't have the pe pedigree, and their troops were made up of a bunch of ragtag settlers defending their own land. They didn't mind getting their hands dirty, nor do whatever it took to achieve their goal, even if, if it wasn't pretty. And oftentimes, some say their opponents did come with a pedigree, and their pride was their worst enemy. I suppose that this analogy breaks down quite quickly, and I don't want to give glory to America, per se. Uh, but the truth is that the true church in the world, in the eyes of the world, is oftentimes a, a, a band of mutts who lack worldly power and influence. And yet it's in these times that the, that the church often is purest and therefore most powerful in terms of influencing people for the gospel and seeing the gospel go forward powerfully. Because God's strength is made perfect in weakness. The Babylonians, by making Israel weak, were really making them strong. Because by subjecting them to misery, they would turn to the Lord and he would be their strength. The encouragement to you then in wicked days like our own, when the church and specifically maybe the Reformed church is maybe small in compared to the world and there is a temptation that maybe we're irrelevant. The encouragement is that the Lord is fighting for you and that he will give you horns of iron and hoofs of brass to carry out his kingdom agenda in the world. Members of conservative, Bible-believing churches, uh, Reformed churches especially, might be outnumbered 100 to 1 in our nation today, and worse. Maybe outnumbered even more in the world at large, but the Lord is on your side. And therefore, the church outnumbers the world a billion to 1, even more in terms of power. Therefore, the encouragement to you is to rise O daughter of Zion, arise and thresh, O church, O tattered remnant. Go and seek the lost. Proclaim the gospel. Raise your children in the fear of the Lord. Seek to bless your neighbor and do good works. Seek to be cleansed from the sins of this world and be sanctified. For in these things you seek God's kingdom and his righteousness. And God's kingdom will always be advanced because Jesus is the king over it and he has promised that he will build his church, that he will build his kingdom. Despite the fact that you might feel small and insignificant in your own eyes, you are the apple of the Lord's eye, and he will use you to plunder Satan's kingdom and take back his ill-gotten gains, the people and the hearts of this world, to build God's kingdom. So as we conclude... The text describes two basic types of people, the Lord's people and those who are opposed to the Lord's, whose 
who will be used by the Lord to chastise those who are his. Which means that those who are opposed to the the people of God can never succeed in their plans. In fact, their own actions will work ultimately to their own defeat. The Lord will not allow his people to be chastised forever. For a day will come when the Lord shall return, and he shall bring vengeance against those who sought to do harm to God's people. So let me ask you, what camp are you in? What group are you in? If you are amongst those who trust the Lord, seek him in faith. And and, and, and be encouraged that the Lord is working with you. If you do not know the Lord, well then seek him in faith. Because you are in big trouble. The goal of your life will always be frustrated. And ultimately, you will be judged for all of eternity. So the, the call to you this evening is to repent of your sins and truly believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be one of God's children. Turn to Christ and live. Be one of the tattered remnant uh, that is described in our text this evening. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, Lord, we often do not see ourselves as a tattered remnant. We sometimes are proud or secure in our own strength, in our own worldly wealth and comfort. Father, humble us. Father, we do not pray for worldly comfort, but but for holiness. Change our hearts that we might be drawn closer to you. Give us power to overcome the works of the devil. Give us hearts that are eager to share the gospel with those around us who, who are vainly working against you and your kingdom. Father, give us the joy of seeing people come to Christ, coming to worship you, gathering to to worship you with us in this place and others that your name might be glorified. Father, as we come before the table this evening, help us again to to humble ourselves, to see that in the cross, which from from worldly perspective seems like the greatest failure of mankind, in the history of mankind, help us to see how this has become the greatest victory in the history of this world. For you, in Jesus Christ, have conquered death and hell and taken away your wrath from your people and achieved a great redemption for them. Oh, Lord, as we come to this table this evening, may our hearts be uh, filled with joy. Father, help us to see that we are a tattered remnant, needing of your grace, needing your your strength, needing of the grace that we can find in the table, that we might live faithfully for you. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.